We just wanted to be around you know, anyone with a haircut. We didn't <laughs> yeah. know divisions. So that yeah. helped us a little bit that we didn't, uh, we want rockabilly versus punk versus mod versus suedo versus skin versus grebo versus new wave. We, we thought everyone with any haircut was cool. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we, we drew, drew the map. map. Can I be the can I be the perfect host and, and welcome our guests to Curious Creatures this eve this this evening or this morning or this afternoon? This is Budgie in Berlin and uh, me, Low Tolhurst in Los Angeles, and we're speaking today with Jenny V and Slim Jim Phantom, who are in Dallas. I'm really quite excited because I'm sitting there, you know, and I've been thinking about talking to, to yourself, uh, Jim, and because I don't know if we've we've actually physically met somewhere in the in in the our past. But I feel like I've known you for a long time because I can hear the music as, and, and I've been back in London for the last two days in my mind. Mm. A place called The Venue in Victoria. Mm -hmm. Did you ever know, ever get, and, and actually the place was Legends. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we played there quite a few times. Um, Richard Branson was the owner of the club. Right. That's right. right. Yes. That was one of our big moments when um all all the rolling stones came to see us play there they're all at a table and it was maybe the last time they've all been together it's <laughs> never happened <laughs> since yeah and opening act and they asked the headline act whatever it was back then some other pub band to swap with us for the timing and they said no and <laughs> All of these luminaries, including most, you know, most luminescent, the all five stones were at this gig at the venue. And as soon as we finished, they left. Yeah. So, and if they had kind of changed their thing, they would have at least had the Rolling Stones <laughs> sitting through. But the right. venue was, was a great one. And you and I have met a few times. Once was at uh, maybe even a few times at Keith Altham's office. That's yes. what I was going to say. That's the connection, isn't it? Yeah, that, that was the one thing about Keith Altham's office, who was a big PR guy. And anytime you, you'd go there old school to do your interviews, you'd go to the office. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there was always someone there. Stuart Copeland is my buddy who I've stayed in touch with all these years. We met him there. And there would always be someone in the office up there. That yeah. There has been a you know, kid walking in there. There would always be somebody in that office <laughs> who are getting ready to do theirs or walking out or meeting. or And it was always, I, I remember meeting you and Susie there very early on. Goodness. I, 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 we were sleeping on the floor in the back room, I think. And we were <laughs> <laughs> the, story, the story you told me, Jim, about, about uh, meeting the first time you met Keith Altham is is a great story about you know how you just sort of turned up and said well we're the greatest band in the world and you need to you know do something with us and uh, we were kicking around London we were homeless uh, the whole thing and we had heard 
about an office that they represented the Stones, the Who, police, Rod Stewart, like just every famous name you could imagine. This was the office. I didn't even know what PR was or public, <laughs> but this address was where everyone was. You had to go there. So I heard it from someone at a party that we were at. And the next day I went by myself and knocked on the door oh. and they in. It was 56 old Compton street. I'll never yes. forget. Yes. Wow. wow. That's a great memory. The address is like, brings it all back now. Yes. <laughs> went up the stairs and I went in there and just said, we're the greatest band in the world. We're from New York. We have nowhere to live, but everyone will regret. They don't take care of, you know, I had a <laughs> kind of flabbergasted and said, well, you know, where are the others? They're not here. What's your name of the band? We don't have one. Do you have a demo? <laughs> no. <laughs> and they said, come back tomorrow. Bring the other two with you. Yeah. So I did. I went back to the same office, had the other two with me in tow, and they asked the same, do you guys have a demo tape? No. Do you guys have a, any gigs like that? No. Do you know anyone in town? No. <laughs> Nothing. They were so intrigued, they rented us a little rehearsal room somewhere in Soho, I think. Yeah. We all walked down there, and we did the whole gig in a tiny little padded rehearsal room that was the size of a – and we did the whole show. We stood on the drum. We argued with each other. We knocked into each yeah. other. We did the whole entire thing. And they right. said, this is the greatest thing ever. So they um, helped us. They they called around that little pub circuit. Right. And we just played them. And they had a little bit of that machine behind them that they were the PR people. And we had been hanging around at the parties and you know, squats and get any free nightclubs we could hang around in. And right. we saw you guys play. And it, we just word of mouth. And then we were good at it. And it, and it all spread, and that was very much how London was in 1980. Yeah, I remember seeing you play. They were intrigued by by the story of us. These guys from New York, they have nowhere to live. They're playing here. Okay, so and we just became fast friends with everyone. But so it was long, long, you you saw the the homeless boys playing. I saw the, yeah, they they were called stray stray cats by them, but they played at the marquee. I saw you at the marquee, and uh, that must have been like eighty eighty one, maybe I don't know. And um, the thing that struck me because like you know I had I had rockabilly mates right, so they told me hey you got to go and see these guys. So off it was, it wasn't that far to me as a sort of leap of uh, you know thinking about things it wasn't that far from punk at all it was like it was like the roots of all of that like the energy coming off stage with you guys you know it was just like i understood it immediately i mean i liked you know some earlier rockabilly stuff and things but once i saw like this new version you know like regenerated it was the, the magic was there it's great that's really the thing we found in england that proved our manifesto was that all roads lead to Eddie Cochran and it, it didn't matter if it was punk or ska or it, it, any, we weren't very big on all that kind of um, dividing the genres. Everyone has to agree on Eddie Cochran. For you, what made you come to England? Had, had you felt like you know fish out of water living in? You were in Long Island, right, in New York. Yeah. Um, on Long Island, we were tooled up twenty four seven, and we had uh, got turned on to, to the music by kind of deep researching a little bit the Beatles and the Stones and the Who and the uh, um, 
Clapton, a song by B. Holly. Well, who's that? And the, at that exact the the movie came out, Buddy Holly story, American Graffiti a few years ago. It was just all becoming the right age to be able to make these kind of choices. And uh, for me, I went into New York City one day, train shot straight to Penn Station. I got out, walked downtown to St. Mark's Place, cut over to Third uh, Third Avenue, and with long hair, stopped at the Hair Power, which was a Gum chewing, wise cracking, new wave girl. Right? <laughs> and so when my hair cut like Elvis Presley, she said, "Well, it's about time." I left <laughs> the hair on the floor there. Walked across the street to Trash and Vaudeville. Got uh, blue suede creepers, D rings. Walked down the street, got some baggy pants, Andy's cheapies. Further down the street, cheap jacks. Got a bullet, black and white bowling shirt and a and a and a fleck jacket. And then I went home. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't expect anyone to notice. No. <laughs> and Brian was having the same experience as me. He was a little bit ahead. He got his hair cut a week, a week ago. And, right. And then he and I started a little bit, him and me playing a tiny drum kit. And then Lee was our other friend. We needed a bass. We wanted to be like Buddy Holly and the Crickets or the Blue Caps. And so that was the evolution of it. And a lot of it was coming from you guys in England. We were getting the NME six months late or whatever kind of thing at the newsstand at the, or like a certain record store that would get it from a newsstand in England. And there was a, uh, there was an article about rockabillies or Teddy boys fighting with mods. And we just thought right. it was incredible thing ever. And our goal was always to go and be around. We wanted to find a fourth person who had heard of <laughs> buddy Holly or, or uh, Ursula Hickey or a, uh, no, rockabilly a little bit deeper than just the oldie station. Um, we went to England and it was we got off the plane and you said it was a good idea. No, you said it was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Did you think Ringo was going to be waiting for you at the the front of the airport to show for you into London? I did pretty much think that Terry Thomas and Ringo were going to be there. <laughs> it's kind of in Britain those kind of things were ha happening with greater frequency. You know, skinhead suede head mod the mods were kind of always coming back and the, and the rockers were coming back and around the time of punk we had like our guys looking after if we had you know some gear to carry there'd always be like a younger guy who was like had the quiff and the yeah. drain pipes and the brothel creepers and they were always like the ones who wanted to carry the gear <laughs> i don't know what is going on but it was a crazy time of everything mixed up and everything was something that's what we loved about it we just wanted to be around you know, anyone with a haircut we didn't <laughs> yeah. know all divisions so that yeah. helped us a little bit that we didn't uh we want rockabilly versus punk versus mod versus suedo versus skin versus grebo versus new wave we we thought everyone with any haircut was cool yeah right we thought that that was without knowing it organically because where we yeah. came from no scene of any there was cbgbs and max's kansas city but it's a little bit i think the legend is a little overblown there wasn't right. that much going on mm. really as you know maybe a few people downtown but it wasn't any you know tribe everywhere like that's so nice to hear you know because i i really I, you know could really buy into the uh deborah harriam you know everybody was like all the clubs are right next to each other and every night talking heads blondie ramones 
right. suicide. They were all like, oh, no, the 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 legend is always much more pervasive than 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 the truth. You know, there, you're right though, Jim. There was uh, there was like a lot of cross fertilization in London because I can remember the first time we we had enough money finally in the band to go out and get stage gear you know like we're gonna get we're gonna get some suits and stuff and my mates i was mates with the guys that run robot you remember robot i i remember those guys yes we went to to all those places and um we thought it was so cool down there there was the king of wyoming that was next to johnson's an american classic yeah yeah and you guys are a little bit older than me sex would have been there but when we got there it was already world's end yeah yes right world's end i remember that one um, was, oh, that area was where we gravitated to, and um, but we were still sleeping on the floor at uh, Claudine Riley and Keith Altham's office. And then after the first couple of gigs, uh, the people from ITM, Rod uh, Rod McSween and Barry Dickens, came to see us play. And then we were allowed to sleep on the floor of ITB. Oh, you so we were, uh, <laughs> floor of 56 Old Compton Street to the floor of 117, 119 Wardour Street. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Is it, is it, so you're moving up. Yeah. Moving up. Right, I, right. I like this. Floors we have known. <laughs> My beautiful wife, Jenny V, she went to England as well, being and uh, like me, being gravitated to, to go what we thought was cool in England. I did the exact same thing when I was the exact same age as you, 18, 19 years old, and that was it. I'm from Sudbury, Ontario, Canada, four hours north of Toronto. It's a mining town, Rim. And I thought, okay, I got to leave. I got to go somewhere. And I, Toronto was the obvious choice, but that was too obvious for me. And I wanted to go to where I thought that exactly I would get along with people and all the music that I loved was birthed there. And so it was the same kind of a pilgrimage in a way for me as well. I didn't have like the most exciting. How do I follow up those stories? I really can't. But you, did you stay? So you made the pilgrimage to London. Did you stay there? No, I went back to Toronto. I, the, the hard thing there for me was that I couldn't find people who play in a band i know that sounds crazy but nobody had gear or the ability to to get to rehearsal it was like a bunch of non-committal people so i ended up doing everything myself that's i played bass i taught myself bass when i was a young teenager and i then taught myself to play guitar when i lived there i spent a lot of time alone it was funny you know it was the opposite of you guys having these social connections i went there and kind of just sat in my flat and was like okay I have to do everything myself. So I got a port a studio and I taught myself to play guitar and program drums and I made a demo tape, which I then wow. mailing out pretending I had a band. <laughs> I started getting replies and people wanted to see the band play, but there was no band. <laughs> so it's a good sign. And John Peel actually called my my flat. And wow. said, this is good great. Old demo tape, yeah. This three song oh. demo tape that I had done. And so I took that all as good good signs and i went back to canada and did go to toronto and with all that you know positive reinforcement that i was on the right track uh was able to start a band with some people i had met in high school uh like this 
amazing drummer, rest in peace, Robbie Campbell. He was like the metal head in my town and I was the only goth girl. So he, he and I kind of related and I knew he was a really sick drummer. So he joined my, my first band and we were able to get grants from the Canadian government so we could really record. And as much as I missed living in London, it was meant to be that I went home to start cultivating that. And I was still really right. like 20 years old at that time. Wow. Wow. That's that's a great story. I mean, what I get from that, I get two points from that one. Was one, you found the best thing you have to find for any band, the sick drummer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. There's no band without the drummer. We we all know that, right? And the other thing is that, you know, London was really your your forty days in the desert. It's where you found you, right? And, yeah, I was yeah. really inspired by the scene that was going on at that time. That was more like mid nineties, ninety five. Yeah, the Britpop era and all those copycat bands that really weren't doing it for me. Like, no offense, Menswear or Travis or any of those bands, but it wasn't really my thing. So, right, you wanted to go back to his first band and 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 yeah, I was like, where's that? <laughs> yeah, by that time, I. I'd left England by the middle of the nineties. I was, I was, I've lived out here longer than I've lived any, anywhere else in my life now. We were from New York, went to England, lived there for a few years. Yeah. And, but we had never traveled in America, even though I think we're the most American band ever. Yeah. We were uh, lumped in a little bit with British new wave. When MTV started, they had eight videos that they would, and we had one and they, right. They got hold of straight cat strut. We were brought to the States to kind of play a showcase kind of thing. And we went to LA, play the Roxy. And I just never left. It's funny, isn't it? That whole thing. We had exactly the same experience. When they first started, they were in that little place in Hell's Kitchen, like that, you know, like a tiny little room, basically. Mm -hmm. But you were right. They only had like six or eight videos a week. So we made a video. And, you know, we were these strange guys with funny hair and makeup. They had to put us on. They had to put us on. And that was totally the only reason we got on MTV, because they wouldn't have put us on otherwise if they'd had other videos, you know. But it was like so few things to play. They were like, okay, now we'll put The, the Cure on. And uh, that changed everything for us. I remember coming to L.A. and we, we played somewhere. And suddenly, you know, gone were these very serious young men looking at us playing. It was like full of screaming girls. So it was it was kind of a good good change, you know. That's what I want to know, Budgie. When did you have time to practice the drums? Because you're the best of all. And when did you be that good? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's funny. I... Um, I suppose thinking back, we it was in, in Liverpool, <clears throat> excuse me, Eric's Club in Liverpool. Hmm. And if we did our kind of what's deemed to be the the number of hours you put in. 10,000, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that would have been it. But as when I, we'd gone from, I'd been in a band called Spitfire Boys. <clears throat> and we were given the keys to Eric's really to, you know, go in the, the night after the gig and set some gear up. And we could basically use the club to rehearse in and you know they couldn't get any better i didn't have a drum kit so there was i think the guy who cleaned the place had a drum kit so he lent me his kit um so it's all borrowing all favors but that's where we put the time in there was me um holly johnson was playing bass with with big in japan uh, ian brody lightning seeds guitar bill drummond later klf 
later manager of Echo and the Bunnymen and all that. David Balfe was also a member of that. And then, of course, Jane Casey, who was the, our front right. effigy, our singer. Our, and it was all that, really. It was just, you know, we'd just turn up every day and just argued, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like you can't play you can't play no you can't play so you play this then i say okay play that and and force each other but Riha, after that it was always uh you played when you were playing and i never went home and rehearsed i never practiced my rudiments i don't know what rudiments are i know what they are but I, you made I, your own didn't you tommy you made your own rudiments. the only ones i know for sure are the ones i taught myself <laughs> right. right i know i know what your secret is because you can sing all your beats right he sings all these beats like he'd be just sitting in the corner he starts singing drum beats to things and they're always i can pick out any song from what he's singing the beat you know like most people come up to you and go boom, chit, boom, chit, 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 boom. And you go, and they go, what song's that? And, you, and they go, I have no bloody idea, but budget, I can tell every time. Um, I, I, now, see, now I have to give away where it really started. Okay, so when I'm a kid on my own in the little terraced house in, in St. Helens outside Liverpool, my, you know, my parents have gone out for the night on Saturday night. My brother's already out. My sister's probably gone out looking for Ringo's drumsticks somewhere. And, and I'm in there with a the stereo. And when I went to sleep, I used to sing myself to sleep by singing Beatles albums or Cliff Richard and the Shadows. And I'd have to sing the instrumentals. And I had to sing the albums in sequence. Because if I missed a track out, I'd have to go back, almost like lift the needle in my head and put it on again and go through the album. And I was learning albums of music. <laughs> to get me to sleep my sister thought i was crazy she's a bit scared you know like most people talk in their sleeps you sing in yours um do you think that's important uh jim it's it's that knowing the song yeah it, you know so many drummers think it's about you know sitting in the back and keeping a beat but it's like knowing the song inside out somehow i think we i mean we Ringo, Sir Richard of Starkey, who's, you know, the, of course we all love him the most. And I, right. I think that really the right approach to what's his was to get inside the song and the drums go outward from that kind of, yeah. you know, you make the the song as good as you can by what your you know, contribution to it can be. Yeah, what what your ability is. I mean, you know, I, I was never, you, you know, going to be, you know, this superstar drummer but I loved music and I loved the songs, you know, and, and I knew what I could add to them. I knew what I could put in them. And so that's, that's what I would do. And that's what I concentrate on. I mean, the thing I've found now is the older I've got, the more, uh, the more I love playing drums, you know, back in the, in, when I was like in my twenties, I loved playing them, but it, but it was like, it was like a blood sport, you know, it was like boxing. I was going to get damaged out there, you know, after a couple of hours. And there was, you know, we know the blood on the snare, you know, sticks in the eyes, <laughs> you know, all kinds of things and, and that, but now it's much more like, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, I've become like an old jazz guy, but I love, I love just like the mantra of the drums sitting behind it and just getting right inside that, that rhythm. I, I saw you play uh, at the Greek, uh, 
a couple of years ago now, right? And I, I was watching you and I was thinking, wow, that's exactly what Jim's getting out of it. It's like, it's just the, the pure joy of it. And I was standing in a little place at the front and uh, Tony Canal from, from No Doubt was standing behind me. And I, I know Tony, you know, from uh, different things and uh, I turned around and he had the same big smile on his face that I did you know and and that to me that said everything about you know what it is to just be up there and playing playing the music playing the drums you know it's it's really uh, all the drummers that I admire and I include both of the drummers that are here right now um, they inhabit the music they're not just you know they're, they're not timekeepers they inhabit the music and without them the music's not there and that's uh, that's my my rant for today for this session. I I just want to say how emotional I feel. I feel emotional too. Me too. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but it's so true, and that I I can relate to that as a, a a bass player because when I was talking about writing my own songs and doing my own thing, that was a whole other experience. But now that I play in other people's bands and I play their songs, I can truly just not even focus, just have a rest. Just mm-hmm. go up there and enjoy my playing and right. the, the word joy and all that you said. It's like embodying the music and not having any like emotional turmoil or ego or anything about the song that I may have wrote at a time in my life. Like just going out there just to rock right. and just be in that moment is the, the best feeling in the world. And yeah, as I'm getting older, it I, I agree with you completely. You just have a connection with it that i don't know you can't describe it unless i guess you know as a musician yeah that same night that you were talking about that we at the greek that was one of our most magical nights that was because uh the special guests on the cats show was eagles of death metal jenny's gang played right uh, as guests that night and it was all of our pals you tony it was so many of our super pals were there i had the extra you know drum you know drummer world of right no one else could see it because it was right behind the curtain exactly where it stops with Stuart Copeland standing oh yeah 18 yeah. inches away from me the whole time and I'm like trying to like oh, put a smile on his face and like I have to be careful because once in a while we all know this as drummers you, you like you do something pretty good and then you feel it a little too tasty <laughs> and Stuart Copeland's ass it, in my head, I'm fighting like not trying something really crazy that you may or may not pull off. Right. So I, I just let that's when your years of kind of training is I don't do it. Don't <laughs> listen to that voice. Play the song. Don't try to do some lick from Roxanne right now just to show <laughs> that's when you that's when it takes over. Yeah. You know, the you know, the joy of being in the moment right. and not letting anything creep in yeah. there. Hey, we have a congratulations, um, Jenny V and Slim Jim. You, you, you were married last year, right? Yes, we were. Yeah. Kind of like, yeah. like a Zoom thing yes. with a judge. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you're married now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had a, a, a slightly grander plan that was supposed to um, involve going to the courthouse in Beverly Hills. That's part, yeah. part was all a good plan. And then... That evening, it didn't get past the, the planning stages into our before calling everyone we know part. Everyone was going to come to play the Roxy. Wow. Have our party and then get 
remarried again by Jesse Hughes uh, in his reverend uh, uh, collar <laughs> after it was legal by the judge in Beverly Hills. Right. And we plan to call everyone. We have the Stray Cats, Lal, yeah. you're going to have to play. Budgie, you're going to have to come out and play. <laughs> everyone had to come. It was going to be, we would start at four in the afternoon and until they close the doors. Everyone has to come and do their bit. Um, but the, the world's illness came and things got changed and we didn't make all the calls. So we're still, you're still going to get that call. Oh. <laughs> the call that we did get three, four months later was in a number I didn't recognize. And it was the County clerk's office of Los Angeles County uh -oh. and saying, um, your, your license is going to expire. You have to do this now. And now, now we're honoring these licenses. Do you want to get married? So I um, still want to get married. So I yell on the phone. Do we still want to get married? Yes. Yes. Okay. Tomorrow, 9 a.m., we got my son and Jenny's friend, Netta, to be our witnesses. And we propped up the Zoom like this the next morning. And it was us on one end. And just like you guys, there was a county clerk and a judge. It took maybe three minutes. That's a wonderful story. And we're, you know, we've yet to pull the trigger on the on the big charity show though that's we're gonna that's gonna be when the dust is a little bit more settled Me two drum kit four guitars everyone's got a plan from stray cats down to the cure everyone's in between everyone's got to turn up and play you make such a beautiful couple beautiful couple uh, exactly you know it's funny because that's that's the the best kind of marriage i think because like i got married to cindy and um, we just did it like on on a whim we went out to vegas you know we got married in this chapel my friend came in was from england and i said you know we're just going out to vegas you're going to be my best man off we go and uh you know my first wedding was like you know this huge extravaganza and that didn't last that long and this one's lasted you know a very considerable time now and um I always think it's because we got married in Vegas. It was really funny. Uh, one of the Smothers brothers was behind us getting married at the same time. So it was like... one? <laughs> Gosh, you know, you've got me there. I, the one that's been married a lot. The crew cut or, or the more suave one? No, the crew cut one. The crew cut one. Right. Okay. Uh, if we're, if, as we're on wedding stories, okay. <laughs> my, my mine was 11 years ago and took place in Hong Kong. Wow, 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 which is where my my what my my wife was was born in Hong Kong from uh, English English parents we should say because um, Hong Kong was still the British territory out there. Um, yeah. But I was on tour with let's see in two thousand and ten with um, a band from Brighton, and we were in Japan. So I I, I managed to wangle a ticket to go back to England. Or back to Berlin via Hong Kong, so I could meet my future father-in-law and do the right thing and ask for his daughter's hand in marriage. Wow, and dedication! I I had only been to Hong Kong once before in 1982, I believe it was, uh, and it was a very different place. But I was so nervous, you know, going out on the ferry to this little island and wondering mm -hmm. how I'd be greeted. And, Anyway, I, I had to get because it was in Hong Kong. It's going to be difficult getting people over there, you know. So because right. we, we, but we got married at um, <laughs> now. What's it called? A cherry cotton tree drive registry office in Hong Kong. It's it's just, just like so. 
Romantic little name. Um, Sounds very romantic. It was, it was. Uh, and it's a funny place. I, I've kind of managed to get back there on occasion as well, you know. You got some free action happening on this one, man. This is Hong Kong to Brighton to Japan to... You're going to get upgraded. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a song in there somewhere, isn't there? There's there's a song you yeah. know, from Brighton to Hong Kong. To, yeah, there's a song there. I think we have to put it right here. Everyone's going to come back with a verse by, uh, by the next interview. <laughs> Now, do you remember Calton's office when we met now that you reckon you brought I, I, I remember Claudine like it was yesterday, Michael being around. I can't picture, I can't picture, um, have Keith's face there yet, but I remember Compton Street. It's strange yeah. how some things are really clear and other things are kind of can't, you know, as if there's a blank spot. Well, it's one thing that happened there was a life changing, um, event, uh, how it. The, the little precursor of that was we were in a in a pub just wandering around in Soho and Ronnie Lane, if you remember Ronnie yeah, Lane, right. the small faces and the faces and um was walking out of a pub and he had that seventies kind of like teddy boy thing. He had a drape coat on, right. short uh rain pipes, big white creepers, but he was like um you know, mod, he had like he had the mixed things going yeah, yeah. on. And he literally bumped into us and we were all kind of tooled up but disheveled at the same time wandering around and he said who are you guys and we told him the same story we're from new york nobody knows us uh, he said come with me one minute later and we got into a black taxi with him and he took us to um twickenham yeah. where he lived in some ramshackly spinal tap mansion with Chickens and dogs, gravel driveway, kids running around. And he announced to his wife, Katie, we have guests. And we stayed in his house for about two weeks. And while we got our whole world together and arranged those, gave Keith Altham the time to find the gigs. And that, that ladies and gentlemen, is the, is the healing power of music right there, right? Yeah. I, I, I can follow that story up with only a mild story because we were at a pub in Covent Garden one night with Spitfire Boys and we walked in this place and I think the guy, the bass player and a couple of mates from uh, Sweet were at the bar yeah. Okay, yeah. and we all kind of couldn't help ourselves but just went, we just haven't got a clue what to do. <laughs> and I think we, we then had to run out the pub because he was about to nail us, you know, he was about to yeah. like... Because he was right. like, wasn't most pleased. <laughs> right. These guys are tougher than they look. Uh, yeah. yeah. There you go. There you go. What gets me? He said, "Well, this is a lovely conversation. It's, it's a so lovely touching base." Yeah. It, I, as I say, it felt like we've always known each other. And Jenny, it's so lovely to meet you. It's all very emotional stuff for me, this. It's, it's very beautiful. Thank you so much for taking your time out and talking to us. We, we owe you one, and Jenny as well. We'll see you soon, Paul. Yeah. Budgie, I just, I'm a super fan of your drumming, and, you know, I'm... So I'm still singing the songs, Jim. <laughs> yeah. Jenny, it's been a pleasure. What a pleasure. Look forward to seeing you, both of you very soon. See you, kids. Bye. Bye.
now, Peter, our friend Peter from Berlin, has a question for us. Okay. Which is a very interesting question. How is it to watch your own cover band? Does it make you proud, or is it more like, pardon my French, uh, drinking your own ooh, urine? So- oh, my. <laughs> I've only had two occasions yeah. where I've I, I've never seen a Susan the Banshee's cover band. Yeah. Um, but I think it was Cleopatra Records based out of uh, in LA. LA, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, they put together some bands that chose to cover Susan Banshee's songs. Yeah. And the funniest thing was hearing the approximation of like Susie's constantly changing London pronunciation. Right. And the way right. she just pronounces words. And of course, it was a bit like listening to old cartoons of the Beatles when they got regional accents all wrong. It, it's right. as close as you get. It's like me trying to put an American accent yeah. on it. And I'm probably right. somewhere south of Brooklyn, north of Los Angeles, yeah. you know. Right. Could north of Los Angeles, from west of Atlanta. Could be yeah. anywhere in a 5,000-kilometer radius, you know. Right. Um, so it, it, it was a little, a little painful. But do you have, go on, have you seen any cure? Um, oh, have I seen any cure cover bands? I have seen. I think you know lot. them. You've met them. I you? do know them. And, and I have two, two thought processes on this one, but not thought process. I have two thoughts on this. Hmm. Um, in Los Angeles, where I live, I have um, made friends with the best cure tribute band. And they're called the curse. And uh, Brian, who is is the the singer and guitarist, very. I mean, he does not look like Robert, but he's very very close in sound and uh, technique and everything. And he's you know he's a very nice man, and his band is is very good. And a couple of times, um, wants to celebrate. They've been going for like sixteen years. You know, they've they've been doing it for a long time. And they asked me to come and play with them when they, they played some, uh, a show like a, you know, a commemorative show for their 16 years. And it was wow. a lot of fun and it, and it was great. And if I close my eyes, you know, it was very, very, very close. And, um, then they returned a favor for me because I asked them, you know, we did uh, a gig for uh, a charity. So I said, you know, I need, I need to have a band. So they came along and, um, played and, that was very good, you know, and and I'm I'm sort of humbled and flattered at the same time. That's the way I think about them, you know. Um, I have seen a couple of tribute bands that were less than stellar. Then I had a I had a situation. Well, not a situation. I I recently did a book tour just before the pandemic down in South America, in 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 Peru and Chile and Argentina, and. Part of the thing for me going down there was, well, I'll talk about the book and that, but you know what? I could, you know, make more of the situation. I could play somewhere. Right. So I was kind of like Chuck Berry, you know, I, I did this sort of thing where, you know, we put out feelers to get people, you know, that played in Cure Tribute bands in those those areas, like in, you know, Arequipa in, in Peru and in uh, in Chile in Santiago and in um, Buenos Aires in, yeah. in Argentina. And so we would get these cure cover bands and I would never play with them. I would see their uh, 
YouTube video and decide which one I thought was the best and pick them. And then I would send them a list of six songs or five songs, say, please learn these and I'll play drums with you on them. And then I would just turn up on the day, probably not even sound check, maybe a minute or two before the show. And we'd just sit there and we'd go, okay, we're going to do this one, that one, this one, this one. And I'd play. And it was okay as long as we stuck to the same arrangement. Sometimes they had, for some reason, they changed the arrangement a little bit and extended it. So, you know, I'd be sitting at the back shouting out, you know, four bars, changes, you know, something <laughs> like this. But, and, and they were all great. And what was really great mm. always was the bass player. The bass player was always excellent in the, any of these bands. The thing where it was a little difficult and it wasn't, it's absolutely, absolutely not their fault. They're all great musicians that I played with, and they were all really sincere and, mm. and very nice people. But because, you know, I'm playing South America and it's their second language, you know, they're singing in English, it's their second language, and I play, I play against the vocals. I'm not playing, I'm not counting bars and beats generally, you know, except when I am, but listen to the singer. So you're listening to them, yeah, the weight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the way of the vocal, the way the vocal is going, how it's going, and I'm playing to that. So when English is your second language, sometimes some of it's lost in translation a little bit, and and they were singing something, and I was thinking to myself, <laughs> that's probably how it sounds, but that's definitely not the word that, that Robert <laughs> sang. Can you remember <laughs> any of the words? <laughs> yeah no i don't I, you know i mean my spanish is awful so i cannot you know i'm not going to be here and criticize anybody no at all, no but, I, I but it was different it was yes. different so you know to to peter's question is generally i've had good experiences with that and uh you know i'm not going to join one anytime soon but i from time to time it, it's kind, kind of fun to play with them and uh you know enjoy that part of it okay well, the second part, the answer I could give is I had an interesting experience in Berlin. Mm. Um, old friend of mine, dear friend, who's no longer with us, um, it's Bill Rieflin. He was playing with R.E.M. Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, they came through. They were, they were recording probably one of their last albums. And it was the most surreal situation. Um, so I, had, um, I, was, I was visiting um, Bill and mm -hmm. they were off to their gig, so we're all congregating in the uh, the, the grand foyer of the Hyatt Hotel on Potsdamer, which is not far from the old um, uh, Hansetone Studios where yes, right. they were recording and where Susan the Banshees did some recording when the wall was still up. Mm -hmm. so, it's a long, circuitous story. Also in the same hotel were Pearl Jam. Wow. So, so I had... Eddie Vedder sitting on one side, Mike Mills sitting on the other side of me. And Mike Mills was proceeded to tell me that every year on Halloween, he puts together a Susan the Banshee's tribute band. <laughs> <laughs> I say, you're having me on, aren't you, Mike Mills? You're, you're just winding me up. And no, no, he wasn't. He then he said, you should check it out. And he, he showed me this little recording. And... It, he was like really faithful rendition and great vocalist. Um, I don't know if he's still doing it, but you know, I not only was I sitting with the voice that, that makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand on end when you hear it live, 
Eddie's voice and and the, um, and Mike and, and I don't think Michael Stipe was around. He lives also. He has a place in Berlin, I think. Um, it was just one of those surreal moments where you just find yourself surrounded by characters from other bands, and they're all kind of talking to you rather than the focus being the other way. Because you know, I was, what amazes uh, yeah. amazes me is, is that they have time in their life and in their head to to do a band other than themselves. <laughs> you know, that's that's what I would find strange. Well, yeah, I don't I'm, think at that point there that REM were at their busiest. I think right. there were I mean things were winding down. I think, but right. um, you know, so perhaps Halloween is not their busy night. <laughs> Whereas right. with the, the Banshees would always it's probably be a busy night. Yes. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer Dan Didier. Executive producer Mark Cates. Associate producer Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing Margie Taylor. Art and logo design Justin Thomas K. Music production Jackknife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC. 2022.